Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. song always gets me. It gets me. Um, so what's happening? What's happening is, first of all, I wanted to thank everybody who responded to my, uh, sent me emails, uh, having listened to my show last week about Christmas and about my childhood and Christmas and Judaism all mixed up together. Mixed up is the word. I really appreciate the uh, that you're listening and that you sent the comments in. Uh, some people told me their own stories, which is always the most interesting thing. Um, and what's coming up this weekend is New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve. Uh, the governor of uh, my state, New York State, was um, quoted this morning. I don't know if it was um, uh, something that was issued by his press office or whether it's something he said himself at a press conference or that he said on the air in an interview or something. But he said, 
that he wanted everybody to make sure to come out to Times Square, that there was nothing to worry about. You know, uh, the annual tradition of close to a million people jamming into Times Square at midnight to celebrate uh, New Year's Eve, which I find inconceivable. I find it absolutely inconceivable. I mean, um, I, don't, I don't like to get into a crowded elevator, let alone, uh, I can't imagine that, uh, I think most of the people who go to um, Times Square at midnight and jam themselves together along with a million other people Times Square could probably fit um, maybe a hundred thousand or a hundred or two a hundred to two hundred thousand people in there. I wouldn't say comfortably, but with some room to breathe and to move. But a million people, a million people, it's extraordinary to me. I mean, it's the opposite kind of personality. I think a lot of people are tourists. They come from other states and they come from other countries. It's an international tradition to be in Times Square on New Year's Eve. Uh, and, um, but now, uh, the speaking of what the new year, uh, the new year has uh, brought us, the old year has brought us, and the old several years have brought us, and what the new year uh, is something that we have to be afraid of, especially now that Trump is going to be uh, president. Um, the other day in New York City, at Trump Tower, where uh, the president-elect lives and where he has his offices, um, there was um, a panic and, um, and this is uh, Trump Tower is at 55th Street, 56th Street, and 5th Avenue, which is right smack in the middle of a, of a very fancy commercial district where, where hundreds of thousands of tourists pass by every day um, shopping and visiting. And yeah, it's at the southeast corner of Central Park. It's like a central area of New York City. And all sorts of um, bus routes and car routes and, uh, uh, you know, transportation converges right around there. Well, the other day at around 4 p.m. in the afternoon, there was uh, a bomb alert, an alarm that somebody saw a package and they couldn't account for. And everybody streamed out of the building in panic. And um, everything shut down. All the stores around there shut down, um, you know, uh, at, a, at a very busy time for them to sell things. Uh, traffic was snarled up in every direction for miles. And this is one of the curses of, uh, of, a tr- of one of the minor personal curses for me because I have to take a bus past there, past this Trump Tower and remind me that he's going to be the president twice a week for appointments that I go to. And um, it, it was just extraordinary. So where was I? So the governor comes on and says that, uh, and, and this is terrorism, you know, uh, this is what's going. This is what's going to happen. Anything with Trump's name on it, Trump Tower, where he lives, uh, Trump uh, Trump has his name on various properties in this city and in other cities and in places all over the world. And wherever that is, it'll be the name of the president of the United States up there. And terrorists will take the opportunity, perhaps, to set off bombs or to uh, create uh, other sort of atrocities in these buildings or right around these buildings. So this is another downside of, um, of uh, this asshole being the president of the United States, which I still can't quite believe. Will I watch the inauguration? I have no idea if I, if I can actually bring myself to watch the inauguration. I just don't know yet. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I could stomach it. Anyhow, uh, the governor of our state, Andrew Cuomo, who will one day wants to be president himself, and... Uh, who is just another, believe me, another hack, another political hack, who is um, 
uh, unethical at least, if not creates, uh, if not commits illegal acts when it comes to politics and uh, corruption. Uh, but he wants to be president, and maybe one day he will. I don't know. But he announced that um, don't worry about um, terrorism. Well, don't worry about terrorism because the New York City Police Department will be protecting uh, the area, Times Square. A million people. Nobody can screen who these people are. Nobody is going to check what they're carrying. I mean, if it's uh, a backpack here and there, there'll be random checks, more than random checks. I'm sure there'll be cops all over with automatic weapons. Although what good they would do in a crowd like that on New Year's Eve is a mystery to me. I mean, it would be, uh, they would, the cops would wind up killing more people than the terrorists did. But to check, I mean, uh, maybe there won't be that many people. Who comes to New Year's Eve uh, in, in Times Square? Got to be young people. Got to be people who don't have, um, who don't have children. Maybe, uh, maybe they have girlfriends, boyfriends, husbands, and wives. And certainly they have friends. They have families. But <clears throat> it's got to be people who don't have children, who can't afford to get crushed at the very least or to be uh, blown up or shot, you know, in this era of terrorism. I have no idea. But this is New Year's Eve. And, of course, uh, this is the last place on earth that I would ever go any time ever, because like I say, I've always been a loner, and physically, even physically, I have uh, claustrophobia, and I'm afraid of uh, any kind of jam- being jammed in anywhere. When I was a kid, I was crazy on the subject, and I've never really changed. So um, anyhow, New Year's Eve is coming, and um, New Year's Eve is an occasion, like uh, many occasions, but that uh, that I tend to associate with, but especially New Year's Eve, that, and maybe I'm not the only one, that I tend to associate with loneliness and melancholy. Um, uh, and also, it's New Year's Eve. is like a birthday. And when you're older, like I am, you're, uh, another year has gone by, so you have to deal with mortality, too. But it's an occasion that I always associate with uh, loneliness and melancholy. When the bells all ring and the horns all blow And the couples we know are fondly kissing Will I be with you Or will I be among the missing Maybe it's much too early in the game Oh, but I thought I you just the same What are you doing New Year's New Year's Eve Wonder whose arms will hold you good and tight When it's exactly Thank you. Reese. 
There's a sappy song for you, right? But uh, I remember when that was, uh, of course, it's Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, you know, you can't do, you can't go too wrong with Ella Fitzgerald. Um, but when you're young, I mean, I, I think it, uh, with that, you know, brings out memories in people. When you're young, and maybe when you're not so young, and you're living alone, when you're single and you're living alone, there is tremendous pressure for New Year's Eve to be with somebody. I mean, to be with somebody on New Year's Eve. Um, and I think what it is, it's a kind of a symbol of your connection to the world and your ability, especially to be lo- to love and to be loved by somebody. Um, I have spent in my life uh, before um, having been married and living with people, I spent many uh, New Year's alone uh, when, when I was single. Um, and, and this is usually when you're younger, but uh, it could happen when you're older too, and maybe it's still happening. I mean... Um, there's a lot of people who listen to me who tell me their stories, and some people are married and some people are not. Some people don't regret not being married or not regret, they don't regret not living with anybody. They're happy by themselves. Other people are not happy by themselves. Um, and New Year's Eve seems to bring that out, you know, that longing, because uh, I remember uh, one New Year's Eve, I was around 25 years old. I was looking at, I was living in Brooklyn in Park Slope. Um, no, this was when I was living in Brooklyn Heights. This is before I even moved to, to uh, Park Slope. I was uh, about 23 years old, right? And I'm looking out the... Um, I lived in a building where uh, my apartment was on the second floor, not very high above the uh, street level. And I, uh, I remember um, drinking, of course. You know, uh, uh, there have been times in my life when I drank too much. And I was looking out, uh, I know it was New Year's Eve, and I was feeling sorry for myself because I didn't have a date. Um, and I'm looking out uh, out the um, the windows, uh, front windows of my apartment, which face to the street. And then I'm seeing all these couples walk by and feeling even more and more sorry for myself. And I remember other times when I was a teenager, uh, when I was in college, and other times on and off between marriages... <laughs> between when I was living with people when I would uh when I would be alone on New Year's Eve and it was always it was always the saddest thing it was a kind of a melancholy and I remember uh accompanying that with uh with drinking um, um I I remember particularly a couple of um 
of New Year's Eve. Uh, one New Year's Eve, I went to a party in my neighborhood. It was um, it was a party at the local bed, but we had a neighborhood bad boy, a guy who was into uh, you know he smoked pot, even uh, I think he uh, sniffed cocaine. This is back. This is way back in the uh, '60s. Uh, and uh, when would it be? I was about <clears throat> 20 years old. I was in college, so it was 1965, and I was still living at home, God help me. And um, that was not the place to be. I mean, uh, in my house, you didn't want to be home on New Year's Eve because loneliness and separation were the institutions of my house. They were the basic pillars of my house. So that was just increased on New Year's Eve. I would be home in the same house with my mother, you know, uh, who would uh, be uh, lonely and miserable uh, in her room while I would be lonely and miserable in my room, a very uh, awful thing to contemplate. So I was, you know, feeling even worse. But finally, uh, I got invited to a party. And as I say, it was at the local Bad Boys. And this guy was, uh, that's what everybody in the neighborhood, I mean, he was just, uh, the neighborhood was a very kind of conservative uh, lower middle class to somewhat middle class neighborhood where everybody was uh, very calm and quiet and clean and everybody watched uh, Father Knows Best. And it was a neighborhood where people did not do things that were different, really, let alone outrageous or let, especially let alone illegal and dangerous. And this guy was, uh, like I say, our local bad guy. He... Um, he smoked pot and uh, occasionally sniffed cocaine. He um, went to uh, to wild parties in Manhattan. He actually went to Manhattan a lot, the den of iniquity. And um, he had a party at his house because his parents went away to Florida. His parents uh, took off and went to Florida and left him with the house. Little did they know, right? So he had this uh, crazy party where he invited all of his friends from Manhattan. A lot of them were older. And a lot of them were definitely much more experienced in the world, um, these people. And um, in fact, at this party was the first time I ever got really drunk. I mean, I didn't drink at home. There was no drinking going on in my house. That was not something that happened. There was no alcohol except Manischewitz wine, which was used uh, sparingly at various uh, Jewish uh, holidays. But uh, I went to this party, this New Year's Eve party at my friend, and uh, People were, uh, you know, it was 1965, and people were taking hallucinogenics, and people were smoking pot, and you know, I mean, just walking into the party, you just take a deep breath, and you were, uh, you get a contact high from the pot, and um, I was sitting there, and being a loner, uh, and to this day being a loner, I was um, even in the midst of people who I hardly knew, but uh, I could be introduced to, I could have introduced myself, I didn't. I just found a place on the couch. And uh, got myself a drink and um, tried to fit in. Some guy sat down next to me, and uh, he was completely high. And he says, uh, hey, man, there was some jazz on. Of course, Eric is playing jazz. Uh, Eric was the bad boy. And um, he was playing jazz, jazz something unknown. Uh, usually it was just always rock and roll in, uh, in my neighborhood, you know, uh, mid-'60s. But he's playing far-out jazz. I don't know it was John Coltrane or something like that. And some guy since sat down next to me and said, man, I, can, I feel like I'm inside that saxophone. <laughs> well, so did I from a couple of drinks because my imagination and my general state of being, my consciousness, uh, reality and unreality or boundaries are, um, are never really clear to me as separate things. Uh, boundaries between my imagination and what's real between... Um, 
between, you know, uh, art and between reality. I, I don't know. But um, one of the reasons I went to the party is because there was a girl there named Marilyn who, had, uh, who I had a tremendous crush on since I was a kid, since my teens. When we were in high school together, even in junior high school, I think. It wasn't just even a crush. I think I was uh, partially in love with her, too. Uh, I really did feel that. And um, uh, so she was at this party, but I couldn't find her. I was looking around downstairs for her, and uh, I couldn't find her. So I'm in this party, and uh, my friend Eric came over, and he knew that I had a big crush on this girl. And Eric had a, he had a mean streak in him. He had a kind of a sadistic streak. And um, he knew that I had a big crush on this girl, and he, but he also knew that I was, um, I was prudish when it came to girls. Prudish is not the word. Afraid. <laughs> I was afraid when it came to girls. And um, uh, he knew also I was still living at home with my mother and that I was uh, very sort of uh, backward when it came to sex. And this was a party. You know, there was people were having sex in the corners. People were having and upstairs where the bedrooms were. This is a house where downstairs was, was the kitchen and the dining room and the living room. And even there on some of the couches or in the corners, people are having sex, which was extremely embarrassing and upsetting to me. And upstairs where the bedrooms were, people were really into it. And um, Eric comes over and he says, you looking for Marilyn? That's the name of this girl I had this crush on. And I said, yeah, where's Marilyn? And he says, uh, she's upstairs. You know, she's having a good time upstairs. And I... Um, I went upstairs, and there I, um, I, uh, she was apparently Marilyn, who was not backward when it came to sex. She didn't have much in the way of parents, so she was always looking for love. And one form this love took was having a lot of sex. She was uh, notorious in the neighborhood for having a lot of sex. And so I always felt funny because I, I couldn't bring myself to have sex with her because I was so prudish and afraid of girls. Terrible thing. Um, and there she's upstairs, um, having sex, multiple sex with multiple partners, guys just coming in and out. So I walked up the steps, and I, uh, that's it, I was really drunk at this point. And I made it up the steps, and I hear her inside talking, and I didn't even bother to look in the room. I got so disgusted, I walked out. I walked out, I couldn't handle it. I, uh, I went downstairs, and I decided to go home early. It wasn't even midnight yet as if it made any difference to me. And I was so drunk and I felt so miserable about what happened to this girl, and, you know, me not being able to connect with her um, and not being able to have sex and not being able to be with her. Uh, I walked home, uh, it was about five blocks, and I was so drunk I fell into a rose bush full of thorns, even though it was midwinter, still full of thorns, completely torn up and bloody, threw up, and then... Uh, wound up getting back to my house sometime around, you know, 10 minutes to midnight, being very quiet because my mother was always up and always around. Anyhow, that's, a, that's one, of the, <laughs> one of the wonderful memories I have. So I feel very lucky that the last 20 years or so, last 25 years, I've been living with my wife and uh, spending very quiet evenings. She's like me since we don't like parties, spending very quiet evenings. And I mean lucky that she loves me and that she's with me. Um, considering uh, what she has to put up with. But uh, I've been home with my wife, spending quiet evenings together, reflecting on New Year's past and maybe what the new year will bring. Um, so I just want to say on this New Year's, no matter who you're with or if you're by yourself, wherever you are in the world, I wish you a good, healthy New Year and uh, the best to you. 
absolutely the best to you.
This is an article from a paper a couple of days ago. Uh, 75 years after Imperial Japanese warplanes destroyed the Pacific Fleet here, and this is from Pearl Harbor, but Dateline Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. 75 years after Imperial Japanese warplanes destroyed the Pacific Fleet here and drew the United States into World War II, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan on Tuesday stood next to President Obama at the site of the attack and offered repentance but did not apologize. Quote, I offer my sincere and everlasting condolences to the souls of those who lost their lives here, as well as to the spirits of all the brave men and women whose lives were taken by a war that commenced at this very place, and also to the souls of the countless innocent people who became victims of the war, Mr. Abe said. And um, goes on to say that, uh, he added, we must never repeat the horrors of war again. Well, good luck, right? Look at the world. And Trump coming in, too. The article continues. For his part, Mr. Obama um, described in detail what occurred on the day of the attack, highlighted acts of heroism by American service members, and said that the visit of Mr. Abe reminds us of what is possible between nations, between peoples. And... Um, we have a guest on today uh, who's going to discuss this a little further. Michael uh, T. McPherson, who is the National Executive Director of Veterans for Peace, who just uh, the other day issued an extremely interesting statement. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, let me uh, read some of your bio so people know who they're listening to. Is that okay? Okay. Okay. Yeah, if, sure. if it's too much, Thanks. you can stop me. But I, I mean, you've got quite a background here, so I wanted people to know who they're listening to. Right? Okay. okay. Um, Michael uh, T. McPherson is the National Executive Director of Veterans for Peace. He was a field artillery officer in the 24th Mechanized Infantry Division during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, also known as Gulf War One. <clears throat> a native of Fayetteville, North Carolina, he joined the Army Reserve in 1981 as an enlisted soldier at the age of 17 and attended basic training the summer between his junior and senior high school years. His military career includes six years of reserve service and five years of active duty service. He separated from active duty in 1992 as a captain. And uh, Mr. McPherson is, uh, Mr. McPherson, I'm sorry, I'm not saying your name right. That's okay. Uh, is a former co-chair of the St. Louis-based Don't Shoot Coalition that formed in the aftermath of Michael Brown's police killing death in Ferguson, Missouri. He worked closely with the Newark-based People's Organization for Progress and the St. Louis-centered Organization for Black Struggle. He's a member of the National Association of Colored People, the American Civilian uh, American Civil Liberties Union, and Military Families Speak Out. His son, okay. uh, now an Army veteran himself, served as a, served a tour in Iraq in 2005-2006. And the other day, um, Veterans for Peace, which is a uh, Maybe you could tell me a little bit about Veterans for Peace before we go into the rest of the... Uh, sure. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, so Veterans for Peace was founded in 1985 by a number of um, Vietnam-era and Vietnam combat veterans, as well as associate members. Um, associate members are, are, are people who didn't serve in the military, because we've always believed and continue to believe that um, a coalition of non-vets and veterans are, are best when it comes to working for peace. Um, it was started in 1985. Um, the two biggest issues that um, it was started, one was nuclear, prolifer nuclear proliferation, mm -hmm. and the other um, was U.S. Um, actions in um, Central and Latin America. Um, and 
as you can tell from the name of our organization, um, we are veterans who believe in peace. We work for peace, and we do not see war as a, as the means to solve problems. War, war does not work. It causes more problems than it solves. And, in fact, the people who are sent to fight the wars are the ones who gain the least from them, mm-hmm. and the ones who send us to fight them gain the most. Well, that's, that, there's um, nothing new about that. That's the story of, right. of, of world history, right? I mean. that's, that's, that's definitely the case. Uh, we have uh, about 120 or so chapters around the country. Um, we also have international chapters. I'm not going to name all of them, but just to give you an idea, in the U.K., um, in Okinawa, um, in um, Korea. Um, and um, we have about 3,500 members. And uh, how, how are you funded? Oh, uh, predominantly through our membership. Um, we get some grants, um, but mostly um, we've been lucky that our members um, really believe in, in the cause, um, mm-hmm. and uh, we're predominantly funded by our membership. Now, so would you consider yourself a pacifist then, or is that too too is that too neat a label? I don't know. Well, I think it is too neat a label, and then I also, unfortunately, think people have um, very closed-minded ideas about what pacifism is. But um, Veterans for Peace is not a pacifist organization. Uh, we have members who are pacifists. Um, we have members who are just war theorists. Um, we have members that span the spectrum of belief about war other than the fact that we believe war does not solve problems and we have to, as, as a human race, as, as human beings, find a different way to do this or we, we will destroy ourselves. Um, well, how would you describe a pacifist? Is that somebody who's, is, is that somebody who's like an extreme, uh, under no circumstances, could there ever be uh, the use of military force? Yeah, I would think that um or aggression. you know without yeah, I, I do think that that's probably the case. It's up um when I say people have misunderstandings um by that I think people think passive mean pacifism means being a passive person mm-hmm. um and not taking action to create the kind of change we want in the world and and I don't think that's the case. Um I think the Martin Luther King for example, is a person who didn't believe in the use of military force. Um, but he was a very active and strong person uh, who took a stand and uh, did what it took to, to make change take place. So I think people might want to broaden their understanding of what a pacifist, and, I, and me not being a pacifist, but having um, mm-hmm. respected and looking, looked at um, different types of people who are pacifists, um, you know, I don't think of it as a bad thing. I just think I, have, I don't have the wisdom or, you know, oh, or the emotional yeah. maturity to be a pacifist. Yeah, it takes uh, it takes in a, in a ironic sort of way. It takes a tremendous amount of courage, maybe more than any other kind, right? To be a pacifist. I mean, uh, look at Gandhi. Look at uh, Martin Luther King. Look at the people who right. participate in all the civil rights movements. What they put up with in a passive right. way, not passive, but in a uh, in a pacifist way. You know? mm-hmm. um, so, uh, Veterans for Peace. Um, this was before. Uh, Prime Minister Abe visited um, the um, the memorial in Pearl Harbor. Yes. Uh, Veterans for Peace issued um, uh, an apology, uh, and the apology, it says here, is in conjunction with a call to President Obama to also apologize to Prime Minister Shinzo Abe during his upcoming visit to Pearl Harbor. Now, last May, right, wasn't it last May that— uh, yes that uh, the president went to uh, Hiroshima uh, and went to the memorial there, right? Right. That's correct. And yeah. um, what, so, what, what, yeah. what was his stance? What were his statements there? 
Well, so um, let me say that we uh, issued an informal apology um, at that time, um, and uh, the president did not, of course, did not apologize for the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima or Nagasaki, although he did uh, call for the abolition of nuclear weapons, you know, in a world um, where we don't have them in, in, in peace. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have to acknowledge that his visit to the memorial and his call um, was a great step forward. Um, it was small, but it was a step a step forward. When I say great, I mean an important step um, because it hadn't been done before. And, and without really um, specifically or explicitly acknowledging the dropping of the bombs, I mean, everybody knew why he was there right. and that th- that was the reason, right? Um, but at the same time, by not actually saying it, um, that means you're not taking full responsibility for the horror and the pain and the fact that that should not have ever happened. You know? Now, um, yeah. I'm sorry. Can, can the president of the United States um, in the year 2016 apologize for the actions of, uh, of uh, his country when, uh, at a time when he wasn't? I don't even think he was born then. I mean, no. in other words, it, would it be a legitimate apology for him to do that? And that's one question. The other question mm-hmm. is, why didn't he, if he didn't, apologize? Well, to see, I think that the fact that you asked that second question, and if we look at why he didn't, because there's so many people, I think politically, who misunderstand or just don't agree with the idea of apology, mm-hmm. um, because... You know, one thing that's a, a bit of a myth is that the war wouldn't have ended uh, if if the bomb hadn't been dropped. Um, and also, uh, people called for Japan to apologize for attacking the United States, which people should, one thing, remember, Hawaii was not a state at right. the time of the attack. Right. Um, so there's political reasons um, why the president couldn't go that far? So, we, and, possi- possibly yeah. he would he would seem weak if he did that. It's always been the story right. with Obama. Right. People accuse him of being weak and passive, to use a certain word. Yes, yeah, yes, I think so. Um, and and also just not being um, uh, fair, I guess, because if they're not apologizing to us when they attacked us first, why should we apologize to them? You know, well, yeah, so well. that kind of kind of way of thinking which would say that if people are feeling that way now, um, that yes, um, an apology from the president in 2016 for something the U.S. did in 1945 um, uh, does make uh, a difference um, because of the emotion um, that the discussion and the issue brings up today means that we really haven't dealt with the realities of, of that time. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think so. And in fact, I think a government, the United States government has been a continuous government since, uh, since the founding of the nation. Mm-hmm. And uh, the policies from that time to the day um, that are in effect or things that we have done, uh, the government has to take responsibility for it. Um, well, that, be that, it I slavery guess the, or I genocide gonna... of Native Americans or whatever it might be. Yeah, I was just going to say that the, I don't believe that the government of the United States, any current government of the United States, has ever issued... An apology. First of all, speaking of the Japanese, was there an official yeah. apology issued for the internment during World War II of Japanese Americans? 
Yeah, you know, I was looking up the different apologies, and unfortunately, I don't want to say yes or no because I can't remember. Yeah, I so can't I don't, remember. I don't remember yeah. either. And but uh, the United States government has never officially apologized to American Indians for uh, the Holocaust right. that took place. And as far as I know, the American government has never apologized um, for uh, for the institution of slavery. No, you know, states don't apologize. The federal government doesn't apologize. Right. Well, there was a vote in Congress, um, I can't remember how many years ago, maybe 2008 or something, uh, around slavery. Uh, So there was a kind of uh, admission uh, to the evil of it and a kind of apology, Uh, but not to the extent where it's like real hugely publicly known. Um, that even that happened, much less like what we might consider a full apology from the president, whoever that president might be. So there, but there has been some uh, movement in that direction in Congress. Uh, so, yeah. So coming back to to Pearl Harbor and 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 the dropping of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, um, we just we believe that the fact that nuclear weapons are humanity's most powerful weapons Mm -hmm. and there is the possibility with the use of these weapons that humanity could destroy itself and destroy all life on the planet and the planet would still be here but life as we know it would not be the same Mm -hmm. that in order to really move down a path of abolishing these weapons um, we must acknowledge humanity must acknowledge and the United States specifically must acknowledge that the use of these weapons um, is a moral evil, um, and should apologize it, which for it, which means that we take full responsibility. And then, you know, just like anything, once you take full responsibility for something, then you can really begin to move forward mm-hmm. uh, to change your behavior um, in the direction that you're going in. Do you mind if I read the uh, the apology that was issued by? Um, no, fine. Uh, okay, but, uh, you're listening to Michael McPherson, who is the executive director of Veterans for Peace, um, and here is. Um, Here's the um, apology. Veterans for Peace expresses our deepest condolences to all those who were killed and maimed and to their families. We apologize to the Hibakusha. I don't know if I'm saying that right. The survivors. Hibakusha. Hibakusha. Okay. The survivors of the nuclear bombings, and we thank them for their courageous continuing witness. We apologize to all the Japanese people and to all the people of the world. This usually atrocious crime against humanity should never have happened. As military veterans who have come to see the tragic futility of war, we promise that we will continue working for peace and disarmament. We want to see nuclear disarmament in our lifetime. Um, very powerful statement and very important that, uh, that this was issued by your group. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I, I, really, I really appreciate that. I'm very moved by it. Uh, as far as nuclear weapons go, uh, well, first of all, let me ask you this question. So yes. there, as far as Veterans for Peace is concerned, and I guess this is a rhetorical question, there is never, um, there is never uh, a reason for the United States to go to war or to use its military force anywhere in the world? So, yeah, that's um, one of those philosophical questions that, that I'm asked quite a bit. So, you know, we understand that people have the right to defend themselves. Um, so if you're attacked, you know, as an organization, and, you know, we have members who might think different things, but as an organization, 
uh, we understand that we're not, uh, we don't expect people just to stand by and let somebody come into their country or, or wherever it might be and, and, and just do whatever, whatever they want. Self, so self-defense, uh, so, right? Yes. yes okay. So definitely in terms of self-defense, we understand that. Um, but when you're looking at the United States, um, which has a global, you know, bases all around the world, so many that the United States government is not even sh- sure how many bases it has. Right. Um, and that we spend so much money on our military that um, we spend more, almost more than all other militaries combined, certainly far more than the next militaries like Russia or China, etc. Mm-hmm. Our military really is not a defensive military, unless, like I was taught when I was in the military, that your best defense is offense. Right. Um, so I think that if you were to look, and, you know, we could argue about World War II, you know, whether or not that was a just war. But any war after World War II, um, if we really look at what the United States has done around the world and is doing today around mm-hmm. the world, um, I don't really see how you can justify uh, U.S. military actions. Well, I l- just don't see how you can. L- let me, uh, well, take a, take a group like ISIS, right? And I mm-hmm. guess you've been asked this question before, right? Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. A group like ISIS, they're totally out of control, um, murderous uh, religious extremists uh, who, if allowed to get away with it, would probably try to conquer not just the entire Middle East, but the entire world if they could get away with it. You know, a new mm-hmm. caliphate yeah. that would extend all over the whole world. And the way that they treat people who, uh, you know, who have the misfortune to be in captured lands that they control. Um, so you don't see uh, the United States, and the United States has what they call trainers. It's been the same since Vietnam, right? Advisors yeah. was the word then. Yeah, um, right. We have advisors and trainers, and I think we just added more uh, the other day. Uh, yeah. Over there fighting ISIS. Yeah, we did. Right. Is it not? Is it not? Uh, I mean, uh, set aside the incredible tangle of who's fighting who over there, which is almost un, you know unintelligible when you when you try to uh, disentangle it. There's no there's no good reason to be fighting ISIS. Do you think? Well, certainly, I, I think ISIS is horrible. And first of all, I, I actually call them ISIL um, instead of ISIS because ISIS is a Egyptian goddess, and, and yeah, I that's respect, uh, that's respect you know, that legacy, and I don't want to defile her uh, image or name yeah. with, with them. I'm glad you mentioned that, okay, because yeah. it is always a little confusing and upsetting. So. Yeah. Sorry I used that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, uh, you know, and I grew up with that ISIS uh, show, too, you know, but anyway, um, and and so to be clear, and, and the fact that I don't even want to call them her name I think speaks to how much I really, really, and I hate to use the word hate because I try not to be like that, but they are not a good thing for sure. But we also have to look at how we got here. How did, how did we get to ISIL? And, and so when you look at the U.S. invasion of Iraq, uh, which should not have ever happened, or even how Saddam Hussein came into power in Iraq, you, the United States actually had a hand in helping uh, Saddam Hussein come into power. Mm-hmm. What what we begin to see is that U.S. foreign policy has been such that it has created many of the problems that we continue to want to use violence and war to solve. So violence and war created much of this problem, and then we want to use more violence and war to solve it. I don't understand how we think mm-hmm. that we can continue to act this way in the world. 
and there not be consequences. And so what we're seeing is consequences from those actions, and we need to take different steps. And no, um, the problems will not be solved immediately if we take uh, more nonviolent steps. And you might not, and you, and I'm not saying you can all of a sudden just jump into nonviolence. Um, but when violence is the main uh, means, when war is the main means, then certainly you're going to have more war until somebody becomes exhausted. And that could actually, as it did in Vietnam, become mm-hmm. the United States rather than us. Right. I mean, excuse me, rather than the so-called enemy. So, um, yeah, I, I think that um, changing course would be the most, the smartest thing and the best thing for everyone um, because we've used war and that's how we got here. But- you know, well, last question then. I don't want to take up too much yeah. more of your time. Uh, uh, once sure. again, you're listening to Michael McPherson, who is the executive director of Veterans for Peace. Uh, by the way, how do people get in touch or get to uh, see Veterans for Peace on the web? Sure. So you can go to our, rep, our website, veteransforpeace.org. Uh, everything's spelled out, uh, Veterans for Peace. Um, and you can find information about us there. Um, or you could type in Veterans for Peace. And we're in St. Louis, Missouri. That's where our national office is. So, okay. you know, if you type that in, I'm sure you'll get our website. Okay. Um, last question is, uh, Mr. Obama has done uh, probably more than any other president to reduce uh, nuclear weapons, right? Uh, the, uh, the United States stockpiled nuclear weapons and to work with other countries to reduce their stockpiles over the last... Uh, you know, several years that he's been in office. Um, uh, well, well, let me say something about yeah. that before you finish. Yeah. Actually, that's not true, at least oh. from the research that I've done. Yeah, that um, we have continued to reduce the number of warheads, but the percentage of warheads that have been um, taken out of uh, stock, I guess you could say, um, over the past eight years is lower than um, previous presidents. Oh. Um, so oh. he... Yeah, so he's actually reduced it at a slower rate, uh, which I was kind of surprised to see myself. Hmm. And also, don't forget that um, he's announced, um, I guess, a modernization An upgrade, of yeah. the uh, yeah of the and and to like I guess about a trillion dollars over ten years or something of that nature. Um, so while he has reduced them, and and I would say he's definitely been the most vocal. And, and the most visible to call for the, for the abolishment of nuclear weapons, which I guess would lead people to think that he's done the most in reducing them. Um, but he slowed it down and and working for modernization. So you got good and bad there. I guess that's true. And then uh, the last thing is much much of a question is a statement. Um, here we are headed into the new year with a new God forbid, God help us all, president. Um, <laughs> you know, if there yeah. is a God, God help us all. Um, really? Uh, now uh, you have Putin saying, "What was it last week that he's uh, he wants to you know build up and extend uh, nuclear capability?" And then you have uh, Donald Trump saying that that's what America needs to do needs to do the same thing. Uh, we only have yeah. a, a couple of minutes left. I mean, do you have a, any comment on that? Yeah, yeah. So you know, we have to wait and see because it's hard to know um, what uh, the president-elect really wants to do because he's um, he just says things off the top of his head. So you really don't really know what his policy is. Um, I think that possibly um, with a new relationship with Russia, um, that could actually end up being a good thing because that can reduce tensions and and maybe lead to. Um, fewer nuclear weapons. The United States has nearly 7,000, and Russia has over 7,000 nuclear weapons, and together we, they have, we have 
more than all the other, way, way more than all the other countries combined. So last thing I'll say um, is that if the United States and Russia are looking to um, improve or increase their nuclear weapons, then certainly other nations around the world will want to do the same thing because if you have 7,000 and I don't have any and you feel like you need more, then I, you know, I'm going to be like, well, do I need some too? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it really would be bad, and I hope the American people wouldn't stand for it, and the Russian people as well. Well, well I don't know. Whatever the Russian people want doesn't really seem to mean much. And um, what the people want here, considering that yeah. uh, she won by 3 million votes, a popular vote, don't, doesn't seem to mean much either. But we can I only know. hope for the best in the new year. So, um, Michael McPherson, thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. And Happy New Year, and uh, let's uh, hope for the best for the new year. Thank you. Thank you for having me and, and, and covering these issues. And you have a Happy New Year, and take care. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, that's it for uh, this week. Uh, we will go out with a song that was um, popular back in the day uh, when uh, the United States was fighting a war it shouldn't have been fighting. And uh, I will see you in the new year. Listen to me.